0: Hello, this is John Richardson speaking with you from Toronto, Canada. Today is July the 1st, 2021, and this is one more of my ongoing podcasts about LSAT, the law admissions process, and my general thoughts on becoming a lawyer today, if that's what you want to do. And I'm very pleased and honored today to have as my guest, Acacia Anderson, who. It comes from Montgomery, Alabama, is a law school admissions consultant, meaning that she helps people achieve their goals of getting into law school and become a lawyer, and I think she's got some really great stuff, but also uh, is doing some incredibly interesting work, has put her law degree to some very important and good work, which I'm sure she will tell you all about, so welcome. How are you today?
1: Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I'm good. How about yourself?
0: I am fine. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation because I think that there's so much more going on here than just the great work you do in helping people get into law school. But why don't we begin with a little bit about, um, well, I, I understand that you're becoming a law school admissions consultant was sort of related to uh, your getting going to law school yourself, right? Correct. So maybe we should begin with the route to law school, the beginning, the middle, the end.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I actually went to law school. Um, I consider myself a bit of an older student when I went to law school, but I understand that I wasn't that much, that old. Um, I went to law school a couple years out of undergrad. I had already got my master's degree um, in public administration. I had worked a little. I had worked for local elected officials. I had worked for um, a US Congresswoman. And so I am someone who being in the policy realm was really fascinated by just that environment and that type of work. And I felt like that is the type of work that I ultimately wanted to do. And I felt like the people around me that were doing policy work, many of them had law degrees. I also felt like many of them were speaking a different language. So the law was the language that I did not understand. And so my route to law school was prompted by wanting to continue, you know, doing policy work. wanting Wanting to understand this language that you know policy folks understood. Um, and wanting to ultimately end up in the policy realm. And so I was a first-generation lawyer, or I am a first-generation lawyer. I'm the only lawyer in my family. Um, I did not have mentors or peers or people who could kind of guide me along the way. So I kind of just winged it, um, applying to law school, taking the LSAT, all the things that you have to do to get into law school. Um, and there are just so many things that I realized I did not know as I was applying to law school. Um, but obviously I didn't know that at the time I was applying, but ended up in law school after law school was a federal policy attorney, um, at UCLA for one of their think tanks, um, switched over to admissions for a while, ended up moving back to Alabama, back to do some policy work. I'm a criminal justice reform lobbyist now. um, And that's just the abbreviated (laughs) description of my route to where I am now. So definitely happy to go into more detail. But that is the SparkNotes version.
0: Well, uh, that's great. I mean, that's a lot of really, really interesting stuff. Um, Why don't we actually begin with focusing on the the work you do? Uh, And then we'll get into the law school admission stuff later. You know, I, you know, you came on the group and, you know, we're putting up some very intelligent piece of advice for people. I hope they listen to the stuff. Uh, You know, it's good, simple advice, but it is hard to convince people that simple is a good thing to do sometimes. But, um, you know, I think the work you're doing right now is incredibly interesting. So tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, thank you. So I am a policy attorney, which is just a fancy way of saying I am a lobbyist. So instead of spending my days in a courtroom, I spend my days at the state house talking to legislators. When I'm not at the state house talking to legislators, I am reading or drafting legislation. Um, specifically, I work. At, on criminal justice reform issues. And so I'm um, in Alabama. Um, Alabama currently is in the process of being sued by the Department of Justice for having an unconstitution, uh, unconstitutional men's prison system. And so our entire men's prison system has been deemed unconstitutional because it's overcrowded, it's flooded with drugs. There is a lot of violence. We have the highest homicide rate um, in the nation. And just, uh, there's a lot of corruption. And so there are a host of problems problems taking place within our criminal justice system. Um, The state solution, or at least um, has been simply to discuss building three mega prisons. The position of my organization in the work that I do the position that I have is that the solution to this problem, or at least part of the solution, is meaningful criminal justice reform um, that decreases the prison population and that helps keep people out of prison to even begin with. And so that is what I work on a on a day-to-day basis, at least currently, I'm trying to convince legislators, trying to convince, you know, stakeholders and state leaders um, to really think about and talk about meaningful criminal justice reform and things that will help people um, that are currently in prison get out of prison sooner, as well as that will help people not end up in prison. And so that is what my day-to-day, you know, life is currently.
0: Well, that, that's really, really good stuff. And, uh, you know, what's amazing to me about all this is the amount of, you know, the sheer the, the expense, you know, the amount of tax dollars, you know, that are putting into running these prison systems when they seem to be just so, so destructive. I mean, it seems to me that these kinds of prison systems are based on some assumption that, you know, the goal is to punish people, you know, rather than to remove the conditions that got them there in the first place. Do you agree with that or?
1: I absolutely agree, especially in a place like Alabama, um, where we are one of the poorest states in the nation and where we often come um, very close to the bottom of the list in terms of social determinants, such as education, um, healthcare, et cetera. We are not adequately investing in you know these areas where that really could help people thrive and prosper in our state, instead we have for a very long time been obsessed with a tough on crime mentality, locking people up, throwing away the key, um, making people spend way too much time, our time that, you know, is disproportionate to the crime that they are accused of. Um, and yeah, there are much better ways that I think that we can invest our money, especially again, when we are a poor state and we do come, you know, so close to the bottom of the list so often when it comes to all these other, you know, areas.
0: So, are you are you gonna are you gonna get the state there? Are you gonna get the state there? Will all your work pay off?
1: Hopefully, what I can say is that we are in the process. Um, my organization, along with a lot of other advocates within this last year alone, we have been able to stop um, a private prison company from being able to build these three mega prisons in our state. And so, the state of Alabama was trying to do a private public partnership where they brought in a private um, prison company named core Civic um, to build these three mega prisons we ultimately um, really went after everybody that was funding this project so all the major banks, Barclays, regions, Stifles others, and we really um, shame them for, you know, investing in something that really is detrimental to Alabama in our community in the state that we want to see as citizens here. And all of the funders of this project pulled out. And so where we are now is that, you know, this plan to build three new mega prisons essentially is tabled for now. Um, the state is in the process of starting, of trying to have conversations to find a way to maybe build prisons without the private partner. You know, the state maybe will talk about doing a bond deal or something else. But what I do know is that the work that we are doing to really call attention to why this is a problem and why other things need to be done, the work is being noticed. And so legislators, stakeholders do know um, that advocates on the ground are paying attention to what they're doing and they are starting to pay attention to what we are saying as well. And so hopefully we have some success, um, but what I can tell you is the success that we've had so far has been really monumental and unheard of. And so I'm super excited and happy and proud of you know my colleagues for that.
0: Well, you should be excited and proud. So I gather, uh, though you didn't quite say it, I gather your view is that there should be no private prisons.
1: Absolutely no private prisons, um, for many reasons besides just the human rights atrocities that are often associated with private prisons, but also private prisons are profiting off of, you know, people being caged. And, you know, not only are they profiting off of it, but when I talk again about us being a poor state, we were looking at spending at least $3 billion, maybe $4 billion um, on private prisons or these, this private prison partnership, whatever you want to call it, um, when that's money that we really need in other areas. We're a state that hasn't expanded Medicaid and we're in the middle of a pandemic um we're a state that has really bad education really bad education system and so this money if we can find it to invest in private prisons we definitely you know could use that money elsewhere
0: yeah it's, it, i think i think it's totally insane you know somebody says hey i don't have any money i think that i'll because i don't have any money i think i'll go out and borrow money to punish somebody i don't like my god i mean who was it that said that uh Uh, carrying around that kind of anger is like uh, drinking poison or something. I mean, it's just, just, it seems to me to be nuts, but let me ask you this. So you're, you know, you're doing great stuff and I really admire what you're doing. Uh, Generally be your passion, but I also happen to share your views for what it's worth. Um, Did, uh, I'd like to talk to you about the relationship between. You said that you went to law school because you were working with these people who were speaking some language that you didn't understand. Okay, you know, I mean, I've been a lawyer for forty years, so I can tell you it's not really going to get better. Okay, but, but in any case, uh, did you find that your law school experience uh, helped you understand this language better?
1: It definitely did, um, in many ways, and so. When I was in law school, I was able to get a certificate in government affairs, which definitely helped me understand legislative drafting, legislative, um, just everything related to the legislative um, process. Um, it also helped me understand things like criminal law. Um, and that is something that I rely on a lot, you know, now that I'm doing criminal justice reform. And so it helped me learn. Not only the concepts that I'm working on in terms of you know my day-to-day job and you know the work that I'm doing, but it also gave me just like I said the language to speak. And so, oftentimes, you know, I have to look up you know code, state statutes, or I have to look up um, case law to find out you know how certain terms are defined. So if I'm writing a piece of legislation and I say something like traffic offense. How have judges defined a traffic offense? And so understanding the language definitely helps me um, every day of my work, absolutely.
0: All right, so so you started out uh, uh, after you you went to law school. Your first job was what?
1: I was working um, as a federal policy attorney at a think tank at UCLA Law.
0: Okay. Now, yeah, what was the event or whatever that got you transitioning over to working in the law admissions office?
1: Yeah. So at the time that I was at UCLA at their think tank, um, the think tank was called the Williams Institute. And so we worked specifically on LGBTQ rights Um, when the Trump administration came in. their agenda was drastically different than the Obama administration. And so while there was a lot of progress in the realm of LGBTQ rights um, under the Obama administration, with the Trump administration, a lot of things were being rolled back. So a lot of things were being rescinded. A lot of um, the work that I was working on actually started to feel like I was going to a courtroom every day and just taking an L, I was losing. Um, And oftentimes when I was writing, letters to the federal government, you know, our position on proposed rules that were coming out. I just felt like this is going nowhere. Someone is going to take this letter, ball it up, throw it away. Like this just does not matter um, to the people that I'm writing to because this, our position is against, you know the administration's position. And so that was really disheartening Um, and doing that, you know, over time. It really can get quite depressing. It was really disheartening. And I just needed something that was not so overwhelmingly sad, to be honest. And so at the time that was at UCLA, um, there was a job opening in the admissions office, somebody from my, my law school actually emailed me, said, hey, your admissions office is hiring. I think you would be great for this position. Um, I had a talk with them and it just happened to be very serendipitous. It came at a time that I was really knowing that I needed to change my environment, but I did not know where I was gonna go. And so it came at a really great time. And so I shifted to admissions. I applied for their job. I ended up getting the job. Um, I worked in admissions for a couple of years and it was wonderful. It was such a different, um, day-to-day experience than my previous job. It was a job that I found a lot of excitement in. I got to have joy while I was doing the work. Um, I got to meet wonderful, inspiring, you know, future lawyers. And so, but that is ultimately what led me there. Just being in a job that, you know, was really disheartening, you know, day in and day out.
0: Well, certainly two years is, uh, you know, I think long enough to learn almost everything about admissions, but not so long to get sort of jaundiced uh, by by the whole thing. So you were there for two years, and then you, I'm presuming you came back to Montgomery for this particular job that you're doing now?
1: Absolutely. So I was there for um, two years. I knew that I wanted to come back to do policy work, which was my initial love, even though I really enjoyed admissions work and I was loving it. I knew that if I did admissions for too long, that I probably was going to foreclose my foreclose on my opportunity to, you know, end up back in the policy realm. And so I did want to shift back over into doing policy work. And so there was an opening for my current job um, for policy direct, director at a nonprofit here. Um, I applied for the job, I ended up getting it and I moved back here last February. So February, 2020, just, you know, a couple of weeks before COVID, um, took over all of our lives so yeah
0: well that's great so you brought all this uh this wealth of knowledge and experience from working in the admissions office uh and you've got all this inside you and now you're sort of uh using it to uh, help people put their best foot forward and getting into law school themselves
1: absolutely um in part because, like I said, when I was applying to law school, I had no one there to tell me or guide me with regard to the right steps to take, you know, how to write a personal statement or what your personal statement needs to be about, what your resume needs to look like, all these things that, you know, students applying to law school have to do, but, you know, don't always have, you know, reliable guidance or reliable incredible credible sources to kind of lean upon. Um to know how to do it right.
0: Well, you've seen, um, I would guess, thousands of completed law school applications with all the stuff in them at this point in your life.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, that's,
0: that's, that's a pretty good number. I think that's enough to have some very definite, credible insights on this. So do you think that in general, law school applicants understand the importance of sort of, you know, looking at all these individual components of the application, sort of understanding they need to operate relationally against each other?
1: I don't always think that students know that. Um, I do think that for many applicants, I think that their perception is that getting into law school is all about your numbers, your LSAT score, and your GPA, and that the other parts of your application are kind of just irrelevant if for lack of better term just just a make
0: work project something they have yeah
1: that you're just going through the motions that law schools don't really care about your personal statement or your letters of recommendation or anything else and that you know it really is all about the numbers and the truth is that is not the case and so it is sometimes or it was when I was working at admissions. It was really hard to see applications where students had really great numbers, but the rest of their package, you know, just wasn't as good. Um, because I felt like it was a missed opportunity. Like you could have really had a really great shot of you know getting a seat in this class early on um, if you had only you know put what looked like or seemingly put more effort and more energy into perfecting the other parts of your application. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, I think that for a small group of people, probably the numbers will get them in for a small group. But, you know, that's a small percentage, obviously, of law school applications overall. So, I mean, I think where you can bring real value to this stuff is with the people whose numbers are clearly good enough. uh, But, you know, they're going to be looking at other stuff. And I do agree with you that people generally do a weak job on this, partly because they don't understand the importance, partly because they have nobody around who can help them do it, uh, etc. But I do agree with you that it's a problem. And I think that you know you've, you know, in your relatively short time contributing to the else the LSAT study group, you know, I thought you brought some very, very unusually clear and helpful insights. So I, I do thank you for that. Um, but let's say that, you know, you were to put together as possibly an unfair question, because so I'm just making it up, but I'll try anyway. Um, let's say that, uh, you know, you were to invent three rules of applying to law school, three important principles that people need to adhere to. What would they be? Or if you want to have four, that's okay, or five, but what would they be in broad strokes?
1: Rule number one would be to be intentional about who you get your letters of recommendation from. All right. Um, I think letters of recommendation really do play a heavy role for many applicants in terms of deciding whether or not they are admitted or waitlisted or denied. So really be intentional and thoughtful about who you get your letters of recommendation from. Okay. Now
0: what advice would you give them on that? I mean, I think that's very, very good advice. Yeah. Something, How should
1: that they I, go about that? something that I don't think that many applicants do, but I think that they could do and probably should do is interview the person who's going to write your letter of recommendation for you. So oftentimes I think applicants kind of just ask a professor or ask a supervisor or whoever, you know, can you write a letter of recommendation for me? And they just, you know, take their chances with whatever that person is going to write. I have definitely seen, you know, phenomenal letters of recommendation. I have definitely seen lukewarm letters of recommendation. And I have also seen letters of recommendation that were actually negative. Um, And so I think that it's important for students when they ask for that letter of recommendation, not only to find somebody that's willing to give willing to, you know, do them that favor and write that letter. But, you know, someone who's, they also need to find someone who's enthusiastic, you know, and excited about them and has good things to say about them, substantively good things to say about them. And so I think that is definitely appropriate for an applicant to, you know, not only ask somebody to write a letter of recommendation, but to have coffee with them, ask them, you know, what sorts of things do you think you might write about me? Or what do you think my strengths are? What do you think my weaknesses are? You know, what about me do you think makes me a good law school candidate it. Because if you can get clear, good answers from someone, that's probably a good indication that they are going to write very similar things in your actual letter of recommendation. Um, If someone is hesitant to answer those questions, or if somebody is unable to answer those questions, yes, absolutely. Um, That probably is someone that you absolutely do not need to get a letter from. And so I definitely would, advise students to have conversations with the recommenders beforehand to kind of get a sense of what they're going to write to determine whether or not that is the letter that you actually want to submit um, when you get it. And so I can't stress that enough, um, especially when it comes to the fact that, you know, I do know for a fact that there are professors or people who will agree to write a letter, but the letter will be negative when it gets to the school. And so that is probably the most unfortunate thing that I saw during my time in admissions, and it's one of the things that really can hurt an applicant more so than anything else. Um, And that is, that's just the nature of, you know, letters of recommendation, you oftentimes are usually always don't get to see them. Um, And so to the extent that you can get a sense of what it says in advance, definitely go for it.
0: Do you think that a reasonable way to go about this might be to Say you know, hi, Professor So and So. You know, I don't know if you know or not, but uh, you know, I'm applying to law school. I'm, you know, I'm required to have reference letters, and you know, I wanted to ask you, maintaining eye contact with this question. Uh, Do you feel that you could, and would you be willing to write me a positive reference for law school? I think that might help.
1: I think that's a perfect way to go about it. Um, and to really, after that, just sit there in silence, let the professor answer, do not feel like you need to feel the awkward silence <laughs> that may come after that, but really, you know, sit there and let the professor answer and answer honestly and listen to what they're saying.
0: Yeah, uh, but if, that, they're, if they're at all negative or, you know, do you think, I've, you know, I, I don't know you well enough, etc. that might be a cue to go somewhere. I think what you're looking for is something like, yes, I've been waiting all my life to write for somebody like you.
1: Absolutely. That is what you want to hear. You want to hear that you are one of the best students that they've had in 10 yeah. years, uh, that they have done a phenomenal job in your in the, in the class and that, you know, you absolutely are someone that, you know, is going to make a great lawyer. I would be honored to write a letter of recommendation for you. So those sorts of things um, yeah. definitely demonstrate that this person is likely going to write something good about you.
0: Yeah, I think maybe another, another, possible point, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this. I mean, law school, although I think people tend to see law school these days as sort of equivalent to a trade school, uh, law school is an academic program. And it would seem to me that, you know, you want to get letters from somebody who are going to be able to stress your academic skills, writing skills, you know, this if if at all possible. But I I agree with you. I think that's really important. What would be a second principle here?
1: A second principle would be to know why you want to go to law school and be able to articulate that. And the reason that is important is because when you're writing your personal statement, if you are applying to a school that requires interviews, those are definitely going to be things that the admissions committee is trying to decipher um, when determining whether or not to offer you a seat. Why does this person want to be a lawyer? What are they going to do with their law degree? What has brought them to this place in their life? Um, and, and why this was, school
0: in particular?
1: Exactly. One of the things that I felt was often a missed opportunity when I did interviews. So at UCLA, we did interviews for students on the wait list, um, and I managed the wait list. And so one thing that I always felt was a missed opportunity was when we would ask a student what I felt was a simple question, why do you wanna go to law school? And usually that was followed by, why do you wanna go to this law school? Um, And students couldn't answer that. And, you know, that was unfortunate because those, there's no right answer to that. Like, it is just, you know, your truth and your truth is usually sufficient. And, but being able or not being able to answer that was usually a um, and something that was detrimental to candidates. And so that is definitely a second rule that I would have, you know, really give some time and consideration and thought to, you know, why you actually want to become a lawyer and be able to articulate that.
0: Well, of course, you know, to be interviewed, I mean, I would assume that that you never did an interview with somebody who the admissions committee had decided they were going to reject, right? I mean, the only reason to interview would be to see if they could possibly be admitted to the law school, right?
1: That is absolutely true. There were occasions <laughs> where there was an interview And I don't want to discourage anyone, but there were occasions where there were interviews with someone who maybe had a red flag, but had really great numbers. So maybe that red flag is that a professor said something negative in your letter of recommendation, because like I said, that did happen. Um, And there was an interview where we want you or we want to consider you for a seat, but we have concerns. There are, you know, red flags and we're trying to get a sense of whether or not you are going to do well in this environment or whether or not you may be a problem but you know in general what you're saying is correct usually if there is an interview that's because there is a seat available and you are somebody that you know is being considered to fill that seat yes
0: so i mean these personal statements right it would seem to me that the goal is You know, I mean, it's not like a resume in prose to make you come to life as a living, breathing, interesting person. It's just so interesting that they have to admit you just to meet you and get to know you, right?
1: Yes, 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 yes.
0: And there's no doubt that a good personal statement can make a tremendous difference. There's no doubt about it.
1: Absolutely. There's, yeah, that's absolutely the case.
0: All right. So references, personal statements, what else?
1: the last one would be and i know every school or different schools have different you know cultures and different personalities but the last one would be to be a well-rounded person that gets along well with others so be someone who plays well in the sandbox i think oftentimes students think that being a lawyer is all about being combative and being able to argue and being able to win arguments against others but there's something to be said about this profession and how it values civility, um, and the fact that law schools are also looking for people that you know have that characteristic of being able to be civil with others um, and being able to be, get along with their peers despite um, differences in perspective or differences in political beliefs, etc. And so, I do think that. Many times I have seen, you know, letters of recommendations specifically where it felt like the recommender was trying to play up the fact that a student was, you know, someone who could challenge others and win or, you know, be undefeated when it came to arguments against others or arguments with others. And while it is true that lawyers you know in our profession we argue and we take a position and we fight for it um and there is room to be a zealous advocate there also is a lot of emphasis and value placed on civility and so to the extent that students know that going into law school i think they will be well served in part because their application will demonstrate that they are people that can kind of exhibit that sort of um persona but also their application package will demonstrate that they also, you know, can exhibit that persona. So I think that that is something that oftentimes is missed or misunderstood when it comes to um, the desire to be a lawyer.
0: Yeah, you know, let me. I'm just gonna throw in a thought I just had here on the on this whole issue. But of course, I didn't know this when I was going to law school. You know, um, probably not too long after I got out, but. I think that one of the single, if not the single, most important skill here is the ability to listen. Because even if you see yourself as a big-time arguer, you still have to understand what it is you're arguing about, right? Exactly. And, you know, a lot of these issues are are, are complicated, and and I, you know, I, on a personal level, I think I would define affect lawyer good lawyers as being lawyers who are effective you know, and trying to achieve certain results and not necessarily loud, loud argumentation. In fact, I don't think it generally works uh, at all.
1: I agree. I think that more often than not, um, lawyers are having conversations with each other and with judges. And so, yes, being able to listen, being able to respond to what the other person said and, you know, being more persuasive, those are all things that really matter. And it's not about being the loudest or the most aggressive person in the room. It truly isn't.
0: Who would want somebody like that around anyway? Would you want somebody loud and aggressive, you know, to deal with for three years in law school? I I don't think I would, God.
1: Absolutely not, no. Mm -hmm. And many law schools, you know, are some law schools, I can't speak for every law school, but definitely there are some law schools that, you know, weed students out because of that, you know, just based on that characteristic of being someone that likely is going to be a nightmare to be in a classroom with, to be honest.
0: Well, you know, I think this is actually an extremely important point that, uh, you know, I think it would help law school applicants generally to realize that, uh, you know, the law schools pay attention to who they admit, you know, number one. Number two, um, the law schools, if they make an offer of admission, want somebody to accept the offer. Right. No law school wants to, you know, have to offer 5000 letters, you know, to get 500 seats or something like that. So it's always seemed to me. That it would be very helpful when people apply to law schools to make it clear that they'd be willing to accept an offer of admission from that law school. Um, You know. I think, I mean, having, you know, I mean, years ago, I was on the admissions committee where I went to law school, so I was kind of, you know, seeing this, seeing this from both sides, but I do know that at least some law schools, and I suspect all, have very clear stats on how many letters, offers of admission they need to send out to fill their class, and it's actually so pronounced that uh, you may or may not have seen this, but there's a law school, relatively new school in Canada called Thompson, I think it was Thompson Rivers or something, but In any case, uh, what happened was this year they sent out uh, so many uh, offers of admission, you know, they actually had to revoke some of them. I mean, so that's a clear signal that, you know, obviously they're generally sending out a lot more than, you know, people are accepting. So I think that's important. But so we look at these, you know, I asked you for three, three principles, okay, and that's great. So you've given three principles, there's probably more. But however many principles there are, one of the things that is, I think, coming through in this discussion is how important it is to understand that a law school application is more than the sum of the parts, right? That each of the individual components, you know, the personal statement, the references, you know, why do you want, you know, all this they all it all has to kind of dance together, you know, to create right. this, you know, this very attractive package. And, you know my experience with this is that's something that people really don't get i mean they think that somehow so when you select your people writing references you know i mean i i always advise people to do a draft personal statement and give it to the potential recommender because you know they can see then how you know to help this stuff integrate better does that make sense to you
1: it does make sense and i also not only like the idea of a student giving a recommender their draft personal statement, but I like the idea of a student having a sense of what their complete package looks like. So if you ring your personal statement, if you've ring your diversity statement, if you' ring your resume, understanding what story you already are putting before an admissions office and understanding what the gaps are and what you would like a recommender to fill in for you. So I think that students really do themselves, a disservice if they don't think about the fact that a recommender can also work in parts of your story that you can't fit in anywhere else or that you can't find space for and so
0: absolutely yeah I think recommenders that's exactly are really, right.
1: yeah they are a so, great resource to use
0: yeah i i think that you'd probably agree with us i mean you know my sort of experience with this is that You know, if you look at this pool of law school applicants, and this is an oversimplification, but I do specialize in simple-mindedness in my life, Uh, you know, it would be that there's those who are probably going to get into most places, you know, because of the numbers, but there's not that many, right? Mm -hmm. And then you got the ones who are never going to get in, Uh, usually not because of the numbers, but because, you know, of a complete lack of attention to the types of things we're talking about, Right. Yeah. And then you've got most of the people right is the sea. You know, they're in this ocean of you know, if they just pay more attention to what they're doing, they start early enough, okay? You know, they'd be reasonable and rational about about this whole thing. They probably can get themselves into law school. You know, that's that's my general sense of this. Absolutely. I think
1: that's correct. Yes.
0: And so, so now you have, in addition to, you know, your important work of the criminal justice system. So you're, you're now, you've got this sideline going on where you're leveraging your knowledge of the admissions process to give people what you did not have yourself.
1: Correct. Yes. So
0: how about telling us a little bit about, I mean, I saw your site briefly and liked what I saw, but maybe you can break it down a little more. How, How do you help people? What are you doing?
1: Yeah, so I run a business um called Anderson Admissions Academy and essentially what I do is I offer a range of services to applicants, so pre-law students. Um you can break my services down into two buckets. So one is one-on-one Q&A sessions and the other one is document review. And so with the one-on-one Q&A sessions, essentially what that is, that is an opportunity for a student to chat with someone who, you know, understands the admissions process intimately and, you know, can answer their questions. And so oftentimes students have, you know, really small questions that are not small to them, but you know, questions that you know could easily be answered by someone who understands this realm, um, but they don't know who to talk to or who to get the questions answered, by, questions answered by. And so, I am someone to use as a resource to get questions answered. So, whether that is, you know, what schools should I apply to based on my numbers, or you know, what should I write my personal statement about, or if my GPA you know, is low because XYZ happened in my life, how do I explain that to a school um, in my agenda? So you know, all these questions that students may have, I am willing to answer about the admissions process. Um, with the document review bucket of services, I am willing to look at your documents, where that is your personal statement, your resume, um, your diversity statement, um, agenda, and I will critique what you have put together. I will actually read through, you know, what you have compiled. I will give you suggested edits, feedback about, you know, whether or not you are on the right track, whether or not you know you may want to delete some things altogether and focus on something else in your personal statement, whether or not you know your agenda is written in a way that is um, atypical. So you know, maybe you wrote your agenda in a way that isn't necessarily the way that I think a school wants to receive your addenda. Um, And so I will review your documents and I will just give you an assessment um, from my perspective as a former admissions officer of whether or not you're on the right track, what you may or may not want to change, um, et cetera.
0: Well, you know, I think that's that's a tremendously valuable thing. And I'm wondering, just kind of listening to you talk about this, you know, I'm having all these memory flashbacks from this conversation with you, but one of the thoughts that I often have with people was that they don't actually see themselves the way other people see them. And I think that, uh, you know, what a good admissions consultant can do is help an applicant see themselves in a somewhat different light, right? Yes. Uh, You know, often, you know, there's, there's a number of people in the world who you know, really don't appreciate themselves as much as they should. And that, you know, and there's a lot of people in the world who really have, you know, somewhat inflated appreciation of themselves, you know, sort of thing. And I think that, you know, one one thing that a good uh, admissions consultant can do is, you know, help strike a balance. I think actually inspire inspire confidence. There's something about this whole, you know, I call this whole law admissions thing as this third party approval. You know, you're always trying to get somebody, you know, to reward you you know whether it's an LSAT score or this or that and you know that's that's a I think that's a difficult environment to be in and and I think the first step actually is you know for people to think well enough of themselves you know that they're going to be successful in this process and I think that's important and for many people that's unfortunately a challenge but you know maybe you know you work on that as well. Yeah Um, I
1: think Oh go ahead.
0: <laughs> no no, yeah, please.
1: I mean, I think that's a large part of what I do to be honest. I think so many applicants have a lot of self-doubt and even just hearing from me that, you know, you're on the right track, you actually did a wonderful job with your personal statement or, you know, your resume is phenomenal, you know, these things. It's surprising that, you know, students are surprised to hear those sorts of things, but um I think you're absolutely right that, you know, this is such a anxiety-ridden um, process that, you know, so many students are just overwhelmed by it and just feel so lost when, you know, truth be told, they are actually doing really good. Our own, our and
0: our I think they feel battered and worn down as if, you know, there's one way to do this stuff. And, you know, I, you know, and, and people are in stride. I've noticed this in so many different aspects of life uh, and experienced it. You know, how do I know this? Because I've experienced it. You know, I mean, you know, when you're in a, in a really stressful situation, what people want most is certainty, okay? Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, uh, there is no certainty here, okay? But there is a certain, the only certainty I think is that if you just take a deep breath, think clearly about what you're doing and do your very best, you know, there's no reason why you can't get into law school. I mean, as I like once many times, you know, different lifetime used to put it, the law schools have to accept somebody Why not you? Yep. You know, I mean, I think it often comes down to that. But now, just sort of bring this to an end. I know you're not an LSAT tutor, but you obviously uh, see people talking about LSAT, and at some period in your life, you obviously had to go through the stress and anxiety of the LSAT. It's, It's the rite of passage that all of us have to go through in life, you know? Yes. But I'm not asking you, like, how to prepare for the LSAT. Uh, not because I don't think you know anything about it. I I suspect you do, but I'd like to ask you a more important question, I think, anyway, which is, could you give them some advice on how to think about the LSAT preparation process and the role that the LSAT plays in law school? Law admissions, I'm sorry.
1: Yeah, so the LSAT is just one of the things that schools factor in when deciding whether or not to admit you. Um, For many students, and you touched on this before, many students fall in this, like, in-between phase or position to where, based on your numbers, you could possibly possibly be admitted, possibly not. Um, maybe you're a splitter, maybe you have, you know, an LSAT at or above a school's median, maybe you have an LSAT score that's a few numbers below a school's median, and so you're within that range where, you know, a school could, easily admit you and be, you know, comfortable with what their me and LSAT score is. Um, but it is just one of the factors, and I think that so often students think that they need to get a 180 in order to get into a law school or you know get a good scholarship package. Like you have to have this perfect score, or you have to keep taking the LSAT until you get you know that score. Um, when the truth is, there's usually a range of scores that you could get and you know be a competitive applicant for law school, and so. Every law school, you know, has a median number, they have a 25th percentile number, but they also have a number that usually is, you know, last cycle, the lowest LSAT score that we accepted are, you know, the student with the lowest, are L- the lowest LSAT score that got into the school was XYZ. And so students definitely, you know, do put themselves in a good position if they have a median LSAT score, but they also... Can put themselves in a good position without a me and LSAT score and having a lot of other great factors where that's a great GPA and great you know re- letters of recommendation and um, personal statements etc. But I think that there is a lot of emphasis on the LSAT score um, when students are preparing to apply to law school. And not to say that your LSAT score is irrelevant because it's not, but you do not have to have a perfect score. You do not always have to have a school's median LSAT score. Well, um, there are other things that schools are looking at in addition to the LSAT score. Oh, go ahead.
0: Well, uh, I mean, does it seem reasonable to you that at least the way people should think about LSAT initially is to score high enough so they're not rejected because of their LSAT score? Would that seem a, a good starting point?
1: I think that's a good starting point. I think it's good to know what your minimum. LSAT score should be. Um, And there are ways to kind of decipher what, you know, is a good score to kind of aim for. Um, And then also what your ideal LSAT score should be, but it should not be just one number, there should be a range and you're trying to get a score somewhere in between that range.
0: Yeah, well, at a minimum, you know, what you're making incredibly clear here, and I thank you for this, uh, because this is just so important is that the LSAT is one part of a number of aspects of the Your law school admissions file, which if I can put it this way, should be seen as the marketing of you, marketing yourself, academic marketing, you know, to uh, get get into law school. And I presumably you would suggest to people that they apply to a range of law schools as well, right?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that students do themselves a disservice not only when they don't apply to a range of law schools, but when they don't apply to multiple law schools, so I definitely recommend that students consider applying to at least eight law schools and um, law schools that, you know, are safety schools, law schools that are target schools, and law schools that are reach schools, so they should have a healthy mix of, you know, those three types of schools.
0: Oh, my God, this is so practical valuable. It may be too simple for the average mind. I don't know. I mean, you know, one thing about the law school admissions process is that people are, would much rather listen to the complex uh, than the simple, that's for sure. And uh, most of success in life, I think, starts from a few simple principles. And I think you've done a fantastic job in, uh, sharing some of those principles with us today. Um, how do people get a hold of you?
1: Yeah. So you can find me, the easiest way to find me is on Instagram. I answer my DM. So on Instagram, my handle is ask A-S-K, Akisha, A-K-I-E-S-H-A. And my Instagram page links to my website, but my website is www.andersonadmissions.com. Um, but you can find me via Instagram, which has a link to my website and my website has information about my email address. And so IG, Instagram is the easiest way to find me to be honest.
0: Well, that's fantastic. So by day you're uh, you're helping the Alabama prison system. And by night you're helping people getting into law school. I, I hope you have some time to do good things for yourself as well.
1: Yes, I do. Thankfully. Thank you so much for that.
0: <laughs> All right. That's great. Well, listen, thank you so much. I really appreciate this. This has been a, a very interesting conversation and I've gotta say that I admire you and I think you're a great person and thank you for your contributions to the group.
1: Thank you so much, Don. I appreciate it. thank you for having me tonight.